Hello friends, welcome back to Imago Gay, a play on the term Imago Day, which means in the image of God, because we are all entitled to dignity, kindness, and self-determination. I'm still going to call this Happy Pride because every week on this show we are celebrating LGBTQ lives. So today I have newly upgraded co-host, <laughs> chaplain and spiritual care provider, Roxanne Del Valle. Thank you for having me again, even though I am a co-host. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, don't welcome me. <laughs> this is my house. <laughs> Today we're talking about Roe v. Wade, along with some history that I've been looking into on 18th and 19th century lesbianism. And I'm doing this partly for a presentation for SDA Kinship's camp meeting that is this weekend. So if you guys haven't signed up, please go there. You can check out this talk that I'll be doing. And I really wanted to search and look at what was the culture like during the founding of this church during the 1800s. Which, by the way, has made for such good conversation outside of this space. I'm really excited to see your presentation. I'm really excited to see how you put all this together. But even just to touch upon the bits and pieces that we're going to talk about today, uh -huh. I think... It's really interesting. And I know you've read some more stuff. So I'm it's happy. been so fascinating. I love having projects to work on. It means that I'm learning. This is a piece of history that I didn't really know about. I don't really, I haven't really spent a lot of time looking at lesbianism of the 1700s. <laughs> right? to, to even think of doing that, right? Like, how would we even be exposed to that without the intention of looking into gay history and culture and? Which is not like a history that's like a primary history that's taught about, which is interesting. And I think it's also interesting because we're going to get in some, some tea in my presentation, but we're looking at some of these, what they call romantic friendships of the 1800s. And one of Adventist's favorite figures, Ellen White, <laughs> had a romantic friendship. <laughs> so that is some tea that you do not want to miss. So many people have already turned off. They're like, whatever. <laughs> I am leaving now. <laughs> but let's get into it. For those listening, I'm your host, Kendra Arsnow, and our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. So make sure you sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. So... Let's get into this. What was the impact of the overturn of Roe v. Wade for you? Speaking purely from an emotional standpoint, I think initial frustration and anger and then very quickly realizing fear after that, hmm. you know? Yeah. I think for me, I say fear because, and I mentioned this before, but I feel like the church has always been a place that I have said, well, you know, they might be outdated on some things, but, you know, they're trying to do good in the world and I can get on board with that. But some of these other issues, like I'm glad that they don't have the reins on what's decided with this issue. I'm glad that we have scientists and psychologists and lawmakers and people who are really studied in the work of ethics that are weighing out these questions and making a much more safer society for me to be as a woman. Yeah, this is something that happened to me when I, you know, when I identified with the values of my church as rigidly and as strictly as I did once before, I think I viewed life so differently. And it's only been recently that I can look back at the ways that I thought before and see 
kind of the what we talked about last time, the cognitive distortions, yep. you know, just kind of the toxic elements in my thinking. And so I can't unsee that now, right? Yeah. And I think that I have an appreciation for the values of my church, but then they come under scrutiny, you know, when I have this other ethic, you know, that feels somewhat evolved. And I say that carefully because I know what it's like to feel entitled, to feel like I have a grasp on capital T truth. And I've kind of moved to a place of humility and I've tried to see things in the balance of, you know, not just my religious upbringing, but ethics and morality beyond that, you know, from a whole different lens and from an interfaith or interbelief perspective. Right. So now, now it's a little bit more complicated. And I think that when I listen to arguments against uh, a woman's choice to either raise a child or to end a pregnancy, I think, I think I can see it beyond just the tools I had at some point. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I was just listening to a podcast on Today Explained called Roe versus Wade versus God. And it's about how the Jewish community in Florida, they're suing the state because the new laws are infringing upon their religious freedoms. And so actually in interfaith communities, so like in Islam and in Judaism, it's actually not against God to terminate a pregnancy. And they actually quoted something I thought was really interesting from Exodus where you have this scenario where these two men are fighting and a pregnant woman is injured. And they said, well, if she loses the baby, you know, then that person is responsible for damages. But if the woman dies, then that person is responsible for her life, right? So yeah, the, de the death penalty was not employed with the loss of a pregnancy, but it was if the woman was injured and died. And so they're, they're taking all of these biblical basis and saying, we as a community are not in agreement with kind of the Christian interpretation of these texts or the way that they have gone to the Old Testament to justify, you know, their new legislative movements. So I thought that was actually really interesting to see, like, not every, you know, this is not just a, it's, it's a human right, it's a woman's issues right, and it could potentially also be a religious freedom issue as well. Yeah, so, like, you know, see... Then you then you get into the ethical issue. Well, if this is more representative of one religion's values, you mm -hmm. know, why why is it the predominant view imposed upon all Americans, you know? And I think we defend the separation of church and state for some things, and then we celebrate where the state supports the church and other things. And I think that that just isn't congruent, first of all. And it's more like a convenience thing. You know, when it's convenient for me, I don't play the card. And then when it's not convenient for me, I play the card. Yeah. Right? So it just doesn't seem like a reliable way to go about our legislative or our constitutional rights. Right, right. And then when you start to like, if you're not going to make it a religious issue, if you're just going to make it something about human rights, well... Then you have a whole different complication around the liability of a man versus the liability of a woman, the relationship of the man to the fetus versus the relationship of a woman to a fetus. And I think 
when you take any freedom around what they can do during their pregnancy, the logic is that if a woman has sex and ends up pregnant, then she consented to that pregnancy. The engagement of sex. And it's like, well, then are men consenting to marriage to a woman? Like, are they consenting that this woman now who has to carry this child is now entitled to half of their property, entitled to like, we we don't, we never put the same onus upon men when it comes to consent as we do upon women. I think what you're saying is if sex is something that leads to childbearing and that that's the responsibility of a woman... Well, then sex is also something that might lend women to believe it could lead to marriage, or at least that you would take care of this child in very involved ways, or that you would suffer any kind of consequence from a union, like a marriage. (laughs) Right. And raising a child. And not even saying that that's the solution. (laughs) Like, I don't think we should move back into the Middle Ages in that sense. But just to see that, you know, it's never... That's not even a consideration. And so women should have the the essential right to consent to whether or not they want to have a pregnancy. All the situation could should be considered about, you know, I, I get that there are some men who are like, well, that's my child and that I want them. Well, you don't get to have property rights over your wife. You know, like she's not your incubator for your child, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a person. We are moving into a space and into a society that requires conversation and mutuality. And when there's not that mutuality of like one person wants it, but the other person doesn't, you know, it's like that you you have to get this other person's consent. It's just like sex. Like if one person wants it and the other person doesn't, like, okay, that's rape, <laughs> you know? Like it's only when two people mutually want this thing that that's something that, okay, let let it happen. But if it's the woman's body and she's like, I, I take on full responsibilities for this child, you don't want it, but I do and I will fully, then cool. You know, it's like you have to, whatever it comes down to, it comes down to like in order for women to have equal access, equal right in this country, we also have to have the same equality when it comes to self-determination, how we want to live our lives, how we, do we want a career? Do we want to be able to continue our education? Do we want the responsibility of another life or do we not? Do we want to do damage to our body? There are a lot of physical and psychological repercussions that come from carrying a child to term. And do I want to create that type of damage on the only body that I'm given in this life. Like there are so many considerations, but that final decision has to be upon the woman. And to take that away just, again, shows that we don't view her as a full human being at this point. I think, you know, if I try to put myself in the mind of a very conservative person who is pro-life, I think, well, maybe... Maybe they don't believe that the woman has to consent because they believe that life is authored by God. And life triumphs consent. The thing is, like, even God played by the rules of consent in the sense that children are not born and raise themselves, right? These are, like, they are born and they spend the rest of their lives with that family and they require a familial support to survive, right? That we don't, we're not able to live in this world, in a capitalistic society on our own. Like we, we essentially, we need the help of a family unit. And so, you know, you can't force someone into that 
type of contract, someone who doesn't want to provide that or someone who doesn't have the means to provide that. And I think when we think about does God honor consent, there are so many different instances in the Bible. Well, you don't want me around, I'll leave. Or you want this, you want a king, I'll give you a king. Like there are so many things that even God allowed because he wasn't going to override the consent process. And so that's an important part when we think about people who are coming to these laws based off of biblical or religious beliefs. Like this is a part of who God is as well, the consent process. Yeah, and that creation is actually, in terms of human creation, it's about a partnership. It's a co-creating process with God. And I think about it in terms of like illness, you know, you have the burden as a guardian to determine whether this possible life will have any access to quality of life. So when somebody is on life support or brain dead or... Right. That you have to kind of weigh in the quality of somebody's life versus just the fact that they will have life, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, you might think when a physician has a conversation with a family around uh, a family member's injury and due to this injury, this person will always be on life support. You can hope and expect for a miracle that someday, but realistically, you know, yeah. The expectation is that this person will be on life support. Now, you can have a conversation about what the family would want in this scenario or what they think the patient would want. And when you frame it like that, what do you you think the patient would want? It leaves the family to say things like result-based. So to say things, well, they would want to live, Mm. (laughs) you know. But... If you ask the family what they would, what they think the patient would value in their life, mm. you know, it frames the conversation a little differently to understand what the patient thought would be quality of life. Mm. You know, if they really valued being in nature and having the opportunity to laugh and participate very actively, then you can begin to discuss what options align best with our values. Yeah. But if you ask them what they want, nobody's going to say it's such it's so counterintuitive to say, well, they would want to die. Right. No, no, nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to live and everybody wants the opportunity for everybody to live. But I think that God doesn't just choose the potential for life. I think that God chooses the guardian more than anything. Right. Right. To make that choice on quality of life. Exactly. And that the burden really rests in them. And as medical providers, you know, it is really almost like unheard of to superimpose on a guardian or a proxy, like somebody's health. You will take care of them for the rest of their life. (laughs) Right. Right. Like there's so much honor to that role of, and even you working in pathology and you're dealing with families and the remains and what would this person want or... Where would they want to be buried or what kind of service would they want or what to do with their belongings? These are all things you go to the healthcare proxy to or to the guardian to because they're the ones who have the responsibility. And I think that sometimes we're looking at one side of the equation 
And yeah. we fall into that whole victim, a persecutor, rescuer yeah. <laughs> drama. And we forget that, you know, the woman, the person who was chosen to make that decision, to be a guardian, to evaluate the quality of life that's accessible to the potential of life, you know, as just an equal participant that God is looking to honor as well. That's because God point. gave yep. them that role. Yeah, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. It's kind of shifting into like a little bit of the lesbian piece of the 1800s and why this is so important to this conversation, why I find this so relevant. People, you know, are afraid that is this the end of bodily autonomy, right? Yes. Am I going to have a say over what I want done with my body and who I am? Yeah, and then and then you look at the cases that the Supreme Court took on for the fall and you realize that some of these are surrounding LGBTQ rights. Of course, it's not unfounded fear. Yeah. So I think that's where the transition is, right? That yeah. you have something happen, Roe. The uh, overturn of Roe v. Wade. Exactly. And you see what's going to be taken up in the future and you're just, wow. Are we really, do I need to move someplace else? <laughs> because it's it's just disheartening. And I think there's so much interesting things that I'm coming across when I'm studying this history of lesbianism, because what you find, and I'll just give a synopsis, is that there were a lot of lesbian relationships happening, and they typically were not punished if they were two female presenting women. They often saw women as non-aggressive sexual people. And so to think that, oh, these two women, they probably did it by mistake and they were very lenient. There were also the, the consideration of the fact that because a woman couldn't get pregnant by another woman, like the men were more concerned with being cuckold where a wife would have an affair with another man and she would bear his child and he would then pass on his property to someone who was not his son. And so men were even like, we'd rather our woman have an affair with another woman because I that doesn't impinge upon my rights as a man. But the time when, when women began to get in trouble is when women began to dress like other men and ask for the same equality that men had. So you had stories of women who dressed like men and then also requested a wife, right? So women who were married to other women and were found out to be women, they were burned at the stake, they were hung, they were they received a lot of um, a lot of punishment, especially women who used objects to penetrate another woman. So they called it impersonating the male sex, right? When they brought these women to trial, and it was all about usurping a man's prerogative, right? It was more of a disruption to the society of power for a woman to ask for the same rights that a man had. Yeah, I think what's so cleverly done in the past was the conflation of sexuality with gender norms and roles, right? Because yeah. what we have right now, you know, if you look at theory around gender and sexuality, you understand the differences between those two. You understand what's a social construct and what's biological yeah. and what's psychological, right? Attraction. And in this society, I think presentation was everything. So if you dress like a man, they would not, like, I think they say, like, we live in what's called like a, almost a unisex culture where you have to really scrutinize a person's face and, like, look at their features to figure out, is this a woman or a man? But in that society, you could be a woman, but if you wore the garments of a man, people would just take it at face value. That wasn't really looked upon with a lot of scrutiny. And so there were some women who... You know, they're trying to figure out, was this, 
Did they begin dressing like men because of a sexual drive, because they, they liked women and they potentially wanted to marry one? Or did this were they just trying to escape the constraints of their gender for that time, right? Did they just not want to be having to be a housewife and a mother? Did they want more freedom and occupation and career and education than they would otherwise have access to? Yeah, and I think that what's so clever about conflating it all together is that it says that only those who are born with a certain genitalia can have access to the privileges that come to men only. Right. And that way you make sure that not everybody enters the hierarchy, the same the, the same power yeah. dynamics, right? So I think what's interesting about you sharing that is that it's not a, a morality issue it's it's a to power issue, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, oh, I am upset my wife is cheating on me with another woman. Right. It's not, right? Like, because it's not about romantic love. It's not about romance. Exactly. Emotional cheating, that's completely fine because my gender and my privilege as a male isn't threatened by that. Right. But the moment a woman behaves like a man in the bedroom or otherwise right? And just starts to demand the same rights as a man. Now that's a threat. Right. And that's, and also, that's what's punishable. Exactly. And that's what's been so fascinating about this study of history. It was all about the usurpation of male prerogative. And when we tie that back to Roe v. Wade, you know, we really see the same thing happening where, you know, the fact that for a woman to choose, say she does not want a kid, but a male does, right? So to, to lose her privilege, to be able to and that pregnancy is usurping upon his prerogative and his property, and so, and so to speak. And so you see these laws happening, and it's just so interesting. I want to talk a little bit about some examples of this. Okay. So what I thought was one part that was very interesting about 18th to 19th century lesbianism is that it wasn't necessarily genital. So what we haven't recognized is that sexual equality is something that's very new, They did this study, I think, I don't know, it was back in the 60s of like middle class women that basically out of like 336 pregnancies out of wedlock, only like three of them were from the middle class women. The rest of them were lower class women. So middle class women at that time did not see themselves as sexual beings, right? That they they believed that sexual pleasure and the right to a sex as a woman was something that was a male prerogative. It wasn't a female drive. And when you think about that culturally, you know, we don't recognize that actually a woman's right to pleasure is something that's very new in our culture. So the lesbianism that presented itself back in the 18th and 19th centuries didn't necessarily have all the time a sexual component. Now, sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. So being able to decipher, you know, is this lesbian sentiment is this the sentimentality of the time or what is this? It's very difficult for historians to decipher because, you know, you're not having children out of wedlock. There's little evidence of lesbian sexual relation because it just leaves no trace, right? So yeah. that's really interesting because we do tend to, sometimes when we go back and see, well, what's the evidence for lesbianism in history? It's we tend to superimpose the values and the empowerment that's come around women's sexuality in recent years on, you know, these characters that 
had a very different relationship to marriage even, right? Like we think of romance as also a new development in so many ways. People didn't marry their, the love of their lives. They married for status. They married for survival. They married under, it wasn't even a choice a lot of the times. Oh, yeah. Right? So yeah. It so wasn't for love. It definitely wasn't for love. And so I think you're right. The way women express their sexuality or didn't express their sexuality is not so much telling of did they have a sexual attraction? <laughs> attraction. Here. Yeah. It's 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 more telling of the times and what was socially acceptable or unacceptable. What was the thinking back then? And and can I add this to this particular point as well? So when it came to male and female marriages, that men and women almost because they were homosocial societies, right? So women were protected by being around other women and they thought the crossing of the genders could potentially defile her worth, right? So her hymen was her highest value. Mm -hmm. If she were to have that hymen broken before marriage, she would be a disgrace to herself. She might as well commit suicide. Like it was really, really bad. And so even knowing that that was what a woman's fate would be, there were still men who pursued women out of marriage or outside of wedlock. And the disrespect. To know that she would be so devalued in society because she would be used, quote unquote, or... Didn't stop them from trying. Exactly. And so men had, there was a lot of distrust for men and they created that in this this culture to say, you cannot trust men. They were specifically in homosocial societies to surround them with other women. And so it was hard for a woman to develop any type of real intimacy, emotional intimacy with someone who was her enemy. Well, because what choice does she have then, right? I am supposed to marry a man and I'm supposed to be a virgin by the time I marry him. And every other man until that one special guy is a threat to me losing that. Exactly. So I have to protect myself and present as somebody who is really reserved and who is saving herself for marriage. So having relationships with men, even just friendly relationships with men, could scandal. compromise Absolutely. her reputation. So it only leaves her to have female relationships until she finds that one guy. Right. And, and in this society as well that women were looked upon because they knew that this woman could be ruined, like they were looked upon almost as prey. So it was kind of a sport for men to try and get women to have sex with them outside of wedlock. And it became to the point where this article, I'm, re- I'm reading this book, Surpassing the Love of Men by Lillian Fatterman. I highly recommend it to anybody. It's older, but it's so there's so many stories of history in there. I love it. And she talks about how that there was also this component of the hunter slash hunted dynamic that was happening that also can become became violent, mm-hmm. right? If you could, you know, torture a woman mentally and emotionally, you know, what's the barrier to the physical torment? And she regards how patriarchy in that in its presentation as such really led to a culture of violence happening upon women. Now, we live in a society where we're not so far removed from that. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, I remember growing up thinking to myself, like, this is going to get juicy. (laughs) But, like, sex with men is off limits, period. Even as somebody who considered herself bi growing up, that was off limits because that would compromise my value in society. Yeah. If I have sex with a man, that means I'm worthless in my marriage. 
So I don't want to compromise my status as a wife to any man by, by ever giving him the idea that, oh, I've slept with somebody else. That means you're not my first, blah, blah, blah. But that kind of pressure did not exist towards women. And in my mind, I thought, you know, if I am intimate with a woman, even if it doesn't get to the level of like, let's say, you know, I lose my virginity, whatever that might mean in a <laughs> lesbian relationship, even if it doesn't get to that, it's less of a harm to my own reputation than having any kind of intimacy with a man would be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that type of thinking that kind of like put places all this value on like female sexual integrity in that sense, you know, and, and it's relationship to um, this kind of situation where women were hunted to lose their virginity, became a sport, and then also the violence enacted upon women. So for me, when I think about the loss of women's autonomy of the overturn of Roe v. Wade, I also think about is the prevalence of violence against women also going to increase? Because if you, you begin to say that her body is not her own, I think it begins to enact this sense of ownership of the woman's body. Mm -hmm. And that ownership does not just extend to pregnancy. Sometimes it extends to you're mine, you're my wife, and and I own you. And that those are the types of thinking that lead to intimate partner violence. Still very much the majority of it enacted upon uh, by men towards women. Now, that's not to say there are not women who are also perpetrators of intimate partner violence. Right. But when we talk about the women who are killed Statistically, from the CDC, one-third of all women who are killed are killed by their intimate partners. So that's like a huge detriment to a woman's... One-third. One-third of all women. an enormous amount. That's like, I wonder how many... What's the statistics for men being killed by their intimate partner? That's a good question. (laughs) Somebody write us in with the answer to that. (laughs) Because I doubt it's one-third. No, it just makes me think of a real-life example also... Just to like, because these are not concepts. These are not just conversations that fall within the theoretical realm and have no practical consequence to the everyday woman. And that's what's so scary is that sometimes things happen in the ether, right? Or in in the legislative state. And we do not realize the implications it has for everyday people. Yeah. And so how this actually translates, it's like, I've definitely felt like a prey. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of just recently we went to California and and there was this guy who was approaching one of your family members. <laughs> and I remember like she was surrounded by all of us. Like mm-hmm. there was a group of four with, a, with her mm-hmm. and this guy approached her. And when she said no, he was like, why? And we we all hear this, right? And he still feels very confident and like he has the right to demand why she is rejecting him. Right. So like going back to like the psychological, the emotional intrusion and the entitlement around uh, approaching women who you view as prey. It's like that you could question her, that you don't just stand back and respect. And that's not to speak for all men, but I think that collectively, you know... We've all had an experience like that at some point or another. At some point where you say no, and 
And the audacity to continue asking or the audacity to think that something is wrong because you're being rejected. She's rejecting you. <laughs> yeah. and so going back to like the 18th, 19th century lesbianism, you know, so you had women who surrounded each other, you know, in order to keep themselves away from being ruined through their interaction with another man. So this idea of romance and heterosexualism, something that's very, very new. There was a lot of mistrust in these relationships. An example of this was Emily Dickinson and Sue Gilbert. So during Lillian Fatterman's kind of research of like Emily Dickinson and these like many different love affairs that she had with different men, she realized that her most passionate letters were to a woman named Sue Gilbert. And even though Fatterman is of the belief that um, Emily Dickinson didn't have any sexual relationships with either the men or the women, she did find the most romantic sentiments talked about for Sue. And so the passion that we see in some of these letters and these relationships of the 18th and 19th century, we would consider them to be romantic poems written between lovers if they were heterosexual. And so as I continue this investigation of looking at how these types of friendships arose, getting to see that that intimacy that women experienced may be called lesbianism today, but it was this act of being seen as someone who actually saw you, who was willing to believe that you had a mind to tackle difficult questions of philosophy and the world and they didn't have the blinders of your gender. They didn't have the prejudices because of your gender where they plastered on a belief about who you were and your value. These are people who saw you as equals. And I think a lot of the romance really stemmed from this equality. And when you as a government are legislating the kind of demotion of one of those parties of being truly equal, you're kind of going to ruin the love relationship that is there because there cannot be love true love without equality. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the patriarchy sabotages any possibility of real intimacy between two partners. In fact, something we'll talk about on my presentation is some of these intimate letters that Ellen White wrote about her relationship with her husband and how it was not a safe space for her to the point that she was like, I don't even feel like I can pray with this person. I don't want to unite with them in any way. I'd rather stay separated. I feel safer mm -hmm. to be apart and to labor alone. Now, I think she regretted sending these letters to her trusted companion at some point, but I think it revealed that even this idealism that we have sometimes in the church that, you know, that women... And Christian homes are treated so wonderfully and they love they love their status as <laughs> being submissive to the husband. You can see even in these letters the way that she balked against these societal norms, the way that she felt pained by this male entitlement in her marriage and how she felt less human. And not only that, that, how it, it interfered with her own ministry and her own calling to God. I mean, this is an example of a woman who has a very direct connection and purpose in the church and her marriage, as it is structured, uh, poses a, a hindrance and to what, the, her ministry. Whether or not you believe in the prophetic gift or whatever, like right. I, th I think, I think the most important thing for me is to recognize that this person, who we put on a pedestal, 
actually suffered the same hardships that all women of her time were suffering, even under somebody that we would consider to be a godly man, that this structure that she was experiencing was detrimental to her mental health, to her spirit of depression. She suffered depression because of it to the point that she says in her letter that she felt crippled by the things that have been going on in her marriage. Like these are very, what I feel very common experiences that women have experienced throughout time that very recently because the equality has been something that women have been striving after, that only in an equal relationship can a woman not feel oppressed by a union, the heterosexual union with a man. Yeah. It's just so eye-opening to see such a human behind, you know, that even somebody you think would be very respected and appreciated would still be spoken to the way that she was spoken to and treated yeah. the way that she was spoken to. Almost as if like, you know, it, your gender alone could determine how people view you. It has nothing to do with how God has chosen you. Or how qualified you are at your job. Or how intelligent <laughs> right. you are. How it, it has nothing to do with all the things that make you a human being. It's You're reduced to your gender in your treatment and in the way that society views you and respects you. And one last point about like homo romance, it's like, of course, if you place a woman's value on her sexuality or her virginity and her beauty, and you make yourself a threat to that, then you are endorsing intimacy in other forms because you're not trustworthy. So yeah. I see more lesbian relationships popping up in the future. <laughs> <laughs> or, or just like, you know, how, how is it so easy for you to close your eyes to the consequences of what this hierarchy, yeah, the consequences of the hierarchy than it is for you to appreciate women and to see them as an equal? Thank you all for listening this week. Imago Gay is a podcast where we explore queer questions and a colorful God. In addition to curious conversations, I am so grateful for all of you who continue to reach out. And when you share your personal stories, your tragedies, your triumphs, or even just your appreciation for this podcast, it really means a lot to me. So if you are enjoying this content, please be sure to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple podcast, and please share this episode with a friend. If you want to follow our co-host today, spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle, you can do so on Instagram at Roxanne Marie. If you'd like to reach me, you can write me at Kendra Snow with an X on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow our sponsors for today, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship, and be sure to sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International and engineered by Ari Bates.